a listener production. I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Julia Buzatil Nishimura is a Melbourne-based cook, author and teacher and it seems that a career in food might have been impossible to escape. She had a Maltese upbringing in Adelaide and the family table was always full of food and conversation. Things like fresh ricotta and homegrown broad beans. Yum. She travelled and studied in Italy She writes for Country Style, ABC Life and Delicious, amongst many others. And her first book, Ostro, was shortlisted in 2018 as the best illustrated book of the year and named Gourmet Traveller's best food books in 2017. Her second book, A Year of Simple Family Food, was described as real food and life-enhancing by Nigella Lawson. That's high praise indeed. She brings her food and the meaning of good home-cooked food to a new generation of foodies. Her husband, Nori, is a professional chef and their son, Haruki, is an incidental star in his own right, appearing alongside mum in many of her videos. Fresh, simple food cooked with a minimum of fuss. Sounds delicious. Julia, welcome. You know, in the intro, I said real food and life enhancing, and that was by Nigella Lawson. <laughs> Isn't she gorgeous? Amazing. Oh, my, oh my goodness. God. I remember when she first came over to do MasterChef, and we... We're a bit starstruck and yeah. it was ridiculous because as professionals, you kind of think, oh, she's a home cook. Yeah. And we actually thought, wonder what kind of Nigella Lawson will turn up on totally. set. You know, I thought she'll have an entourage <laughs> and she'll be gorgeous and all the rest of it. Now, she was gorgeous, but she didn't have an entourage. She yeah. had like one person yeah, who's wow. her makeup and personal assistant. And she was so bloody oh. down to earth. We were running late and I said to George, do you want a coffee? And he goes, yeah. And then from the back, she goes, can I come? Oh. And we're like, oh, my God. Oh my God wants yes. to so I go, Matt, do you want to come? So we all jumped in my car. Oh. We drove down to Ascot Vale and we went to the Ascot Vale food store and we sat there with Nigella and outside having a coffee and people were walking past going, oh "Oh my God. God." (laughs) Not at us, at Nigella. Uh, A combo. And then what was really strange (laughs) is two policemen came up and got a photo with her and then strangely... The whole of, and I don't know if it's Ascot Vale Fire Brigade, but the <laughs> fire engine turned up with like 12 fires in it. They must and I have went, like a... This is not an accident. Right. They've got some two-way going on. <laughs> They've like radioed to tell them. Those police officers had, had rung the fire station and gone, hey, Nigella Lawson's sitting outside oh, of the Ascot. She really is. Like when I asked her to use the quote for the re-edition... She was just so casual. She's like, of course, darling, like, go for it. Like, wow. just so generous. Isn't that nice? Where have you met her? Where did you meet her? I haven't her? met oh, her. Oh, you met her? You just I had, haven't met sent her. Sent her a copy of the book and said, Sent her a copy. Hey. Well, she asked for a copy. This is the power of social media. It's Gee. bizarre, isn't it? She asked for a copy. She saw someone make a recipe from it, like, years ago. Yeah. She's like, I need a copy of that book. Yeah. And I, I like, instantly DM'd her and I was like, I'll send you one. Like, um, And then Jamie on the back as well. So, is that a little turning nice. point for you? Was it a Definitely. Because there are moments, aren't there? Like oh, the one I've just told you there. For me, that'll stay with me forever. You that know, so. When, you know, when people ask about career highlights, like just to have that kind of recognition from people who I have admired since I was a teenager. Yeah. Like her, Jamie, I interviewed Otto Lenghi for, a, for something oh. and I was so nervous because I'm not an interviewer, but I was asked to interview him and... You know, yeah, they're huge. Yeah. I think the key is, you know, like when you meet these people and if they're the same, totally. you just go, oh, isn't that yeah. nice? And Whereas if you, you meet want. others that are, I don't know, yeah. maybe a bit offhand or they're in a bad mood. Totally. Oh, yeah, she's just divine. So where did it all start for you? Where did, when your earliest memories of food where, I don't know, you were licking a plate or <laughs> a spoon? I mean, I 
loved being in the kitchen with my mum from a very young age. Like I always say, my brother loved playing soccer. My sister loved, you know, singing and performing and I loved cooking. Like that was my hobby. I can even remember watching Play School and like begging my mum to call up the ABC and request a recipe from there. And she so did and they this, posted you know? it like four years old. Mm, that's just, committed. <laughs> yeah. And it was apple snow. That was the name of the recipe. Apple snow. Yeah. Just a, and what was it? Do you know what it was? It's like a meringue, like kind of like a floating island type situation. Yeah, okay. and we made it and I was really encouraged to pursue Did it. Did you get teased by your other siblings because you were always with mum in the kitchen and they were out doing other stuff? Uh, not really. I think, you know, we actually used to play this game in the holidays where we'd like, mum would be like, you know, find what's in the fridge and like make a dish out of it. This is like pre-MasterChef obviously, <laughs> mystery box. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where the mystery box came from, <laughs> it's a fridge, isn't it? And I remember just like, yeah, I mean my brother and sister loved it because I would cook for them even from a really young age and my mum would let me, you know, cook dinner party. You know, she loved having dinner parties and so she would let me cook the meals. I remember making this like jam roly-poly upside down like bowl jelly thing, <laughs> really retro. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I loved it. And, you know, we, we lived near the beach, so I grew up down south near McLaren Vale okay, in so Adelaide. This is Adelaide, yeah. Yeah, Adelaide. And beautiful, McLaren Vale. Oh, it's gorgeous. stunning. Yeah, stunning. So we lived a few blocks back from the beach. I mean, my earliest memory is going down to the beach to collect seawater to make ricotta. Because in Malta they make it with the seawater. And I can just remember these baskets sitting on the sink, just steaming from the fresh curds. Like I just have this vivid memory. And, you know, picking broad beans and shelling them with my nana, you know, family friends bringing around like rabbits to make stufat, which is like our stew. Yeah, I just, and I really absorbed it. I really was like very wide-eyed and just really took it all in. So what's the story of your family? So they're Maltese? Yes. Both mum and dad? Both, or? yeah. So my dad migrated when he was 18 and he was the first of seven to come over. He's one of seven. So he migrated by what himself. Was the, what was the catalyst for him to come to Australia? I think he was just curious, but also economic. Like this was post, you know, World War Two. He's fair. He was, yeah, one of, I think one of five at that time. They had the last two kids in Australia. But um yeah, I think just wanted a different kind of experience and he'd gone to quite a strict school in Malta, yeah, run by the priests. Like I think he just wanted a bit of freedom um, and a bit of economic freedom as well. And so he migrated. He already had, you know, cousins who lived here and aunties and uncles. So he came by himself and then saved up money, brought his eldest brother out. Then they brought, you know, the parents out and then eventually they all, were all here. Yeah, and then my mum was born in Adelaide but her parents are Maltese. So they came over much earlier, I think in yeah. the 40s. So strong connection because actually when you talk a lot about immigration, often people are on their own. They yeah. go, oh, yeah, I came on my own. Yeah. So this is not the case with you. you you've no, got the clan yeah. already set up yeah. within a number of years. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's funny because all of the family kind of settled in um, parts of Adelaide where there was kind of a strong either like Greek, Italian or Maltese community. Mm. But I think my dad loved the ocean and so we settled down um, in a place called Seaford, which is near McLaren Vale, um, and we were really far away from, you know, the Maltese club and all that kind of food anyway, and so we didn't really have a choice but to do it ourselves and to make it from scratch. And, I mean, my dad was just, yeah, he was president of the Maltese club and, like, we were there every weekend playing bingo and I just remember being in the kitchen with the chef, the Maltese chef, and I was just you know, obsessed with watching him make ravioli, like the ravioli and pastizzi and, yeah, it was just incredible. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, because I, I, as you said, the Maltese club, mm. my wife, her parents are Irish yeah. and they went to the Irish club. <laughs> I guarantee 
she never had the same food experience <laughs> growing up around the Irish club, which I think was based around the bar, not as a child, not as I a mean, child, but as an adult. I mean, there was definitely the bar there too, and there was the separate room, which was very, like, smoky and all the old men playing rummy cub. And then there was, you know, the bigger room where the, um, like, band would play and we would go for festas and, you know, it would be a special food that we'd be celebrating or a saint or whatever. So It would have been a small town back then. You can't call yeah. that a very small town Nowadays. No. Everybody gets upset about it. It's multicultural. <laughs> and it's changed Are you listening? A lot. It's a metropolitan, <laughs> multicultural lo- oh, melting pot. It actually is. It like, is. It's no, great bars and food. Jeez. Incredible. You know, tell me about it. If, yeah, I probably wouldn't have left <laughs> if it was how it was now. Um, but I think my mum was very um, cosmopolitan in a, in a sense. Mm. Like she worked for the airlines. She worked for TAA back in the 70s. And so she was always talking about travelling. She had so many travel stories and that kind of planted a different seed. You know, for me, Maltese food was um, all I knew, but then she brought in all of these stories of, you know, being in Morocco and travelling to Rome to buy a pair of leather gloves. And I was just, my head was filled with all of these yeah. travel stories from such a young age and, you know, being in Tuscany and seeing the Cipressi trees and... Yeah, it was very magical upbringing for someone who lived in a very suburban so were those house. Tra- were those travels early on kind of live vicariously through food that your mum brought home? Like, do you remember she cooked, I don't know, if she'd been to Morocco, did she cook a tagine? Yeah, and, she did. Yeah. Like, pr- you know, prunes in kind of stews. It wouldn't necessarily be with the tagine mm. pot, but, you know, all these influences. She would always, she's she a very good storyteller and would always embellish, you know, the decor and the service. And, yeah, just... You know, both my sister and I really took that on and we both have, have travelled a lot and pretty pretty lovely, you know, stories to, to listen to as yeah, a lovely. kid. And great, yeah. you know what it is? It's the the idea of I can imagine growing up mm. outside of Adelaide for your dad, that mm-hmm. connection with the sea. Yeah. And also beautiful produce. Like, yes. I mean, you really, that was kind of, you know, frontier stuff not that long ago, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's planting grapes or olives totally. or, you know, change of industry too. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, completely. Did, did he go back regularly? Do your dad? Yeah, he. Does your dad go back? Yeah, he goes back a lot. I mean, not at the moment. <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah. Now. We just delete twenty twenty yeah, onwards, exactly. don't we? Once um, upon a time. Yeah, he he's very passionate. Like he still, you know, writes for like there's like a Maltese newsletter, and he's very, you know, a very passionate Maltese, you know, citizen and Australian citizen. But um, yeah, he goes back and he loves it. He loves he loves the beach. He loves the hot weather. Um, yeah, I've been back a few times too and it's... How do you feel about it? Yeah, it's nice. It felt, the first time I went, it felt like I'd come home. You know, I'd never lived there and I was 18 years old and I remember I, my sister was living in Italy and I went over after high school and met her and we took a train down from Rome down to Sicily and then caught a boat across to Malta. And I remember my uncle, who I'd never met, picking us up at the the dock Mm. And it just, I don't know, you just feel this, like, immediate connection. My auntie had, it was probably 11 o'clock at night and she was there waiting for us at the house and had a big ricotta pie and she was like this fried rabbit. She's like, we'll have that tomorrow, but I just wanted to show you that I'd made it. And, yeah, it just felt really, felt really good. It felt really proud because I think, you know, I was of that generation in the 90s where, you know, bringing tuna sandwiches to school and, you know, eating rabbit was, you know, totally... Yeah, you were weird. Yeah, I was That's, weird. Yeah, weird. I was yeah. totally weird and it was gross and smelly <laughs> and and now, you know, now look at us. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I felt proud to, like, see all of my family members in kind of where I'd come from. It was really yeah, nice. I suppose, uh, I don't know what your impression of it is, but I suppose for those people that stayed, so many would have left mm. and then returned later, you know, like from the promised land, whether it was America or yeah, totally. Australia. So a lot of stories. I yeah. wonder how they feel about 
I wonder if they're not really Maltese once they've left. <laughs> did did yeah. Dad ever tell you that or not? I think... Um, oh, they're always proudly, like the Irish, they're yeah, always... Yeah, I think always proud. And I think, you know, I've found that with Italian migrants too, that like, you know, when you leave and then you go back to Italy or Malta, like you're almost more Maltese or you're almost more Italian. Like you're really, you've held on to that, those old cultures, like, you know, the sauce making or salami making, which a lot of people don't do now in Italy. Yeah. And, you know, my uncle even said, he's like, you can always tell the Australian Maltese people when they're coming through the airport because they look like they've just like come back from the 70s, you know, like they haven't really changed. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's, it's like I've the heard that a bit, And I'm a different, gen- I'm a lot older no. than you, obviously. But yeah, there's, it, it's almost like, having left Australia, I reckon, in the 70s, surrounded by lamb, peas and potatoes <laughs> and, hol- and holding on to that yeah. like it's the most important thing in your life. Totally. Coming back to Australia and it's, and be like, Whoa. And it's sushi and totally. uh, ramen. You yes. know what I mean? It's, yes. You'd be like, hang on a minute, yeah, what happened to the, the food? Yeah, exactly. It's such a funny experience, like what we hold on to. And- well, I think there's, there's also some preservation of recipes that maybe have moved on at home mm. but yeah. have stayed the same. Because immigrants have kept totally. all of that. It's and important that, to them. It definitely is. And I think that's that conversation of like authentic and is so interesting because I think you go to Italy and what we think, you know, is an authentic recipe because we have it in a restaurant here, you know, people have moved on or something, you know, yeah. or people have innovated and it doesn't make it less Italian. Yeah. Mind so, you, the Italians argue about food. like I know. They disagree. <laughs> I love them. that. They, they can't agree on anything. Politics, <laughs> coffee and food. You know, I, I remember listening we, when we went with MasterChef and they were cooking in a, in a little village square and they were arguing about what Cabanara was, and yeah. we'd only just learned really yes. that Cabanara hadn't got no cream, cream and or mushrooms bacon or, or bacon mushrooms. in it. But they were arguing as much as anybody uh, yeah. else about the detail yes. and what should or shouldn't be in it and throwing their hands up in the air. And I thought, <laughs> and I, we were just saying to the contestant, cook what you want. Like, seriously, <laughs> we're judging, they're not. So it's quite interesting. It is it? interesting. you got to tell me a bit more about the ricotta at seawater because it was just, <laughs> I know it was about five minutes ago. <laughs> But I just went, hang on a minute. I know. So you went and collected seawater down at the beach. Yes. And used that to, because obviously you use salt water and it's quite a high concentration of salt. Yes. So, you know, it's not the true ricotta in the sense of using the whey. I think we made it with milk. But, yeah, it would be the seawater and and you would, I suppose, yeah, you cook the milk with the seawater and it would make it quite briny. salty element of the. Yeah, instead of adding salt. So you'd use the seawater and then they put junket tablets in. Oh, that's cheating. (laughs) You can't talk to me anymore. So not vinegar. Which or is not lemon. how I do it now. No, but that's but okay. I mean, it's a soft. It's, it's a, a soft cheese, right? Yeah, exactly. It's ricotta is in you know ricotta peas, tomato paste, capers like they're out. Goes with everything. Goes it's like butter, I suppose. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. You spread it. <laughs> spread it on everything. So if there's if there's one recipe out of your childhood, or it could be a number of mm. them that you continue to cook and it ends up on your family table, mm. what would that be? Because um, these are, these are the dishes that kind of, you know. What's the word? They migrate through mm-hmm, generations, mm-hmm. don't they? Yeah, I think a really good example of that. There's a in my first book, Ostro. There is a recipe called aliotta, which is a fish soup, like a kind of a brodetto type um, mm. soup, and that is very Maltese and something that I loved eating. That my mum would make, except she would do it with how her mum would make it, which is you know you'd be a six year old kid trying to like pick out fish bones in your soup, <laughs> like super rustic. You know, snapper heads, just very kind of, you know, you go to the fishmonger and say, yeah, flavour plus. But I guess, yeah, for me, I, when I have the soup, I just want to, you know, have the fish. And I still want the flavour, 
so I, in my in my recipe, I make like a separate fish stock and strain it. So get all the bony flavours into it. Exactly. So that's something that I love and you put rice in at the end and it's, you know, just really, really comforting um, and just really fresh. It's got mint um, and lemon and, yeah, very Mediterranean. Beautiful. So tell us um, travels. When mm. did you, was this something that you, from school age, you just went, I'm going to go as soon as I can? Yeah, I think. Because it seemed you, went, seemed you went pretty young. Yeah, I mean, actually my first trip was a school exchange. We went to South Korea when I was in high school. <laughs> so that was a, um, you know, a very eye-opening. I know. Well, we didn't learn South Korean, that's for sure. I think just a teacher had a connection with a school there and we all, you know, it was kind of like a multi-year thing. You could just put your name yeah. down. Um, yeah, so I went to South Korea and was introduced to kimchi and um, bulgogi, like at yeah. a very, you know, I was 13. Korean food's amazing. Incredible. It was yeah. mega spicy, but um, incredible. Like as a kid, I was like this, and I, you know, lived with a family. And I think that really opened my eyes to just what travel can do, like the power of being able to travel. And then yeah, as soon as I finished high school, like I saved up for, you know, two years and straight away went to Italy and Malta and all around Europe, like, Nether- you know, you d- I did that typical mm. backpacking trip. And, and was this just going to be a gap year or did you had you already decided what you wanted to do with your life? It was going to, I was taking a gap year. So I think when I finished high school, I was sure that I wanted to be a chef. Like I just thought, you know. Ridiculous idea, by ridiculous. the way. Ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I didn't do it. So. Yeah, thank God for that. You know, I wanted to do, I mean, it seemed like the only pathway into a food career back then. Mm. They didn't, you know, the people who I knew who were successful were chefs, you know. There wasn't really, you know, besides, you know, even probably back then I thought Nigella was a chef and Maggie Beer was a chef, which they are to a certain degree. But, um, yeah, I, I wanted to do, I was going to do an apprenticeship and, you know. So a fairly traditional path. What were the yeah. conversations, you know, with the family around that? I mean, obviously they knew that. You love food. Yeah. But did your mum and dad go, no, silly <laughs> idea, don't do it? Or? I think they're pretty supportive. Like I, you know, even in my final years of school, I did food tech and hospitality. Like I was properly, you know, you were gonna into do it. it. Yeah, yeah, probably. In, I'd done work experience at the Royal Mail in Dunkeld because I actually went to high school in Hamilton <laughs> after Adelaide, I know. <laughs> so we moved to country Victoria when I was 16 um, and I did my final years of school in Hamilton, which was another experience. Like I learned, you know, all about this Australian, in inverted commas, cuisine, like slices and, yeah. you know, this whole other kind of, you know, I, my friends had sheep farms and it was a whole other Isn't there a experience. big sheep in the centre of Hamilton? Yeah. Isn't it? Like, <laughs> giant like wool big, bales. Yeah, exactly, like the <laughs> giant prawn or the giant yeah. avocado. Hamilton's got the big sheep. I think they're removing them though or something. Oh, are they? Yeah, Why? I, so. I don't know. I think it's like too expensive to restore or It's ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, so then I had this other experience and, you know, I did work experience at the Royal Mail and I, lo- I loved food though and I was very keen to continue it. There was nothing else to do in Hamilton except, you know, I really heavily got into cookbooks. I remember my mum buying me, it was this like five for $20 offer from a kind of a insert of a magazine and it was like the River Cafe, Jamie Oliver, Stephanie Alexander, Nigel Slater. It was a, good, a, a really good, offer, good <laughs> and you know she cancelled the subscription after. But um, it was you know it was one of those ones that you. But they're come they're really when you think about it some of the linchpins in oh, most people's kind of book 100%. collection, right? especially Stephanie Alexander's yes, Cook's Companion. That's the one and. Yep. It was the River Cafe, Too Easy, which is still my favourite cookbook of all time. And that just kind of, I remember making a dish. It was like a, you know, spaghetti al limone 
And I was like, oh, my God. You know, it was so different to Maltese food. It was super light and bright. And I remember it was just like pecorino, lemon juice, lemon zest, and that was it. Like you emulsified it with the pasta water. And here I am, this 16-year-old in Hamilton. Emulsifying <laughs> pasta water. <laughs> it was incredible. And I was pure, like, yeah, completely obsessed. My mum, I, you know, had gone through all of my mum's Women's Weekly and Elizabeth David and all of those. They were kind of the foundation of my so was trying. So on the gap year, you're trying to figure out, I suppose you're just having fun and well, travelling. What cha- Did something change along the way, do you think? So I went just for like three months actually to Europe and I definitely, my sister had, had been living there and so I met her over there and she was fluent in Italian and I just saw how much more she got out of the trip because she could speak, you know, Italian and a bit of French and I was really keen to come back and learn Italian. That was my first thing and then... Yeah. When I got back, my plan was to, I don't know, have some cool gap here, but I ended up working in a butcher, which was actually... Is this a local Hamilton butcher? No, back in Adelaide. I went back back to Adelaide. Just trying to keep track. Yeah. And I ended up working in a butcher for a year, which was, you know, now I look back, it was great training as well. Yeah, I didn't do my great gap year that I thought. I did a few months in Europe, which was amazing, but I soon ran out of money and came back. And at that point, I decided to go and study an arts. I did an arts degree instead. I was like, I don't want to be a chef. Like, I don't want to. Was it the butcher butcher that put you (laughs) Maybe. I did a little bit of actual butchery, but not, you know, I wasn't allowed on the bands. <laughs> you weren't so, allowed on the bands. No. <laughs> so a lot of, you know, deli, I'd worked in a deli beforehand and so right. a lot of deli staff, a lot of just serving and things like that. But yeah. it was like a good experience. Different environment though. That and then I remember like, oh, just like scrubbing trays. That's Yeah, well, memory. that's, we always tell young chefs that, you know, you <laughs> think you're going to be cooking, but most of it's cleaning. You just got to be yeah. a constant, you know, I drive my daughter mad because I have what's called sushi standard at home. Yeah. And just to explain that, you know, if yeah, you ever yeah. watch a sushi chef, yes. right, they, they've mastered this art over probably 10 years minimum. Yes. And their precision and ceremony around this process is incredible. Yeah. So I always have this, you know, everything has its place, there's a place for yeah. everything. Put the knife back next yes. to the board. And I call it sushi standard. It drives her insane. <laughs> and even last night she'll wash up and then I go back and wipe In, down and the sink. And polish. I wipe down the sink, <laughs> remove a few bubbles, straighten the tap up, you know, put something away. And she just looks at me and goes, Dad. Yeah. Like, oh, one day you'll understand. But if you work in a kitchen, uh, it's yeah. kind of crucial. Oh, definitely. For it, the flow of everything. It, the flow. Yeah. That's what it is. It's the yeah. kind of ebb and flow. Yeah. And when you're busy and you go and reach for something, if it's not there, because yeah. it's innate. You know, yeah. if you go to grab the salt and somebody's moved it. Totally. It just slows you down. You've got another second totally. or two that slows you down. Yeah. So arts degree. <laughs> yeah, I did an arts studying degree. Studying Italian. Italian and politics. Great. <laughs> so I was very keen on, you know, international studies and, um, you know, my focus was always, yeah, Italian. I was really into Italian politics. In between all of that, you know, I would just save the whole year and go to Italy at the end of the year for three or four months picked the classes that had the least contact hours and would just go to Italy. Right. And on my, in my, I think it was my, in between my third and fourth year of uni, um, I was like, oh, I've been studying Italian for three years. I really need to, you know, be somewhere, one place where no one speaks English. And I found um, a family on like a finder kind of au pair website in, they were in Tuscany. They looked fine. They looked decent. <laughs> and off I went and stayed with this family in southern Tuscany for four or five months and it was just the best experience of my life. What like, what, cha- what changed for you during that time? Um, I think I was so immersed. Like I didn't feel like a tourist. I didn't feel like a student. I felt like I was living there. I was with this family and their whole lives revolved around produce. Um, we lived in 
on a huge property growing olives. Where was this in in southern in southern Tuscany? Southern Tuscany. So the region's called Maremma, but the it was in between. It was in between a town called Orbitello and um, Albinia. So right. very um, an hour and a half south of Florence and an hour and a half north of Rome. Beautiful. They were just. It was, yeah, they were incredible. And it was kind of my job to cook the pasta every day for lunch because, you know, school finishes up at one. So everyone would come home and have lunch together, which was, I think, yeah, some of the most terrifying experiences cooking for like six Italian people. Yeah, I just think, you know, the nonna live next door and, you know, we'd drive to the local farm to, yeah, buy fresh ricotta or, you know, go and to a pasta factory, which was a farm essentially, and buy the pasta. And just so much thought went into um, the ingredients, the seasons, the like how local things were. And it kind of felt this, you know, I kind of grown up like that, but then it kind of got lost. You know, I went to uni, I was a student. and You lived in Hamilton. I lived in Sorry, Hamilton. Hamilton. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. but um, I love Hamilton. I'm just joking. No, I know. <laughs> but it, it, you it's, know, worlds it's, apart, it's worlds apart. It's worlds apart. It shouldn't be, but I think it is on many levels. Right? Yeah, definitely. For whatever reason. Yeah, and, you know, the, the wine, just everything. They just seemed this, you know, I think what Italians are so famous for is that kind of like joy and that generosity and that liveliness. Like everything just felt so alive and I felt, yeah, it was felt like a big kind of, you know, full circle from my childhood and then this kind of same mentality but on a different level I think I was, you know, more in tune. I wasn't four years old anymore. <laughs> yeah. So how do we get to a point where you just went, I'm going to do this for a career and this is how I'm going to do it? Yeah. It took- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write, I'm going to write recipes. Yeah. I think after after that trip in Italy, I started kind of documenting recipes like from that trip and I started a blog, you know, this is like 2010 or something, you know, I started a blog and started writing recipes, but I still, you know, I kept on studying. I ended up doing a master's in teaching and then became a primary school Italian teacher <laughs> um, and, you know, did it on the side. It was always just a kind of like a side thing until people just started asking me to write for their websites or some articles and it was... How did that happen? How does it... I think social media. I started an Instagram page. Early? uh, Early, I guess. Yeah, it was terrible. Like there was, it was the photography was terrible and it was, like I remember my housemate at the time, I took a photo and posted a photo of this risotto, like a pumpkin risotto and it was on like this green plate and she's like, you know, all the things we know now, which makes a good photo. She's like, Julie, that is a really bad photo. <laughs> yeah, shake it down. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I just, like everyone, we all learnt together really because it kind of happened so fast and, yeah, I think social media had a big role. So um, I started writing for The Design Files, which just had a huge following and still does. And then, yeah, it happened really organically. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. It's interesting because I remember turning around at some point during the early years of MasterChef and Mm. I think one of the contestants, and I'm trying to remember who it was Mm. now, I said, where did you learn this? Mm. And they said, off YouTube. And I went, Yeah, wow. And it was kind of a, and maybe that was, you know, 2013, Mm. 2014, and it it seems like a long time ago now. Yeah, it does. You know, this explosion of content, because that's what it is, it's tutorials and content. Totally. And And it made me really think 
and of course I've changed how I research mm-hmm. recipes and you know all of that but once upon a time we had to earn the right to a recipe it's a bit like going yeah. to stay with that family yes those little tips and tricks and but, the the things you'll never or didn't ever read in a book 100% were only passed down from person to person totally and so like that aliotta I was talking about it's not it was never written down until I wrote it down you know my mum didn't have a recipe for it it was all in her mind it was all from you know that oral kind of teaching and so many of my recipes are like that or they've come from a, a memory of eating somewhere or, yeah, it's funny. And social media is so funny <laughs> because I try not to pay too much, you know, attention to it in so many ways because I think it can be really all-consuming. But, you know, for me I've always just put, you know, what it's really the food I'm cooking for my family at home and yeah. it's never planned or contrived. You know, it's very off the cuff. I know lots of chefs particularly, that try not to look at it because it dictates their thinking. Mm. But at the same time, I find it addictive just from a food perspective yes. because I can see what somebody served for dinner, yeah, a particular dish. Yeah, You know, it, it could be in Paris or mm-hmm. Copenhagen or, mm-hmm. you know, New York. It can you know, be a for, really good spot, you know. Like literally yeah. two hours yeah. after they've done it or 30 yeah. minutes or yeah. three minutes. Yeah. You know, like you'll be <laughs> looking at Instagram and all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And you go, wow. Totally. Alan Passard just yes. put up a dish and I'm looking at it. Totally. And I think, you know, it's undeniable that that had an impact on, you know, I was a primary school teacher who had a food blog which could have just gone to the wayside, you know, it yeah. could have not been on anyone's radar and somehow it was. And I think it was like right place, right time of, you know, home cooking and, I don't, I don't know. I, it's hard to, you know, explain yeah. how it happened. But, yeah, I, I met my publisher at the farmer's market. Like I was doing my shopping with my family. With my, I, was pre- I remember I was pregnant actually with my first and my husband and my publisher was selling juices at the farmer's market. You know, it's all this kind of serendipitous stuff. And yeah. she's like, oh, I love your stuff. Like let's have a meeting. And I was just like, you know, that's the dream. And that's kind of where it happened. Yeah, because I suppose, you know, on MasterChef, I look at when you dig into it, what people's dreams Mm. were, even though a lot of them would say what they thought you wanted to hear. Mm. I want to open a cafe. No, you don't. I want to open a cafe. Are you sure? I want to open a cafe. You're mad. You know, I want to open a cafe. Well, well, let's help you and you need to do a lot of research. So it's, you know, but really it was, you know, put something down on paper, you know, because in the end it ends up, you know, I get a little check. Yeah. You know, once a year from the, is it the State Library or wherever oh, it is? Oh, yeah, that, the lending. For lending yeah, rights, yeah, right? Yeah. I just go, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. It's never much money, but no. it's, you just go, wow, for in perpetuity or whatever it is, totally. it's going to be in the archive somewhere, yeah. which is pretty amazing. It's incredible. And I think especially because, you know, everything is, there is a lot of stuff online now and there's a lot of things that are kind of that intangible thing. And to have a book, I think is really lovely. Like I love cookbooks. Well, there's also a difference in terms of effort, don't you think, Mm. between putting, committing to writing a book and then testing the recipes versus posting something on Instagram. Hundred percent, it's huge. Can you explain the difference? Well, I mean, for one, (laughs) listening. Yeah, I mean, posting. They got to work. The recipes have got to work. They've definitely got to work, but. You know, on Instagram, someone can comment and say like, oh, I think you forgot the egg. And I'm like, oh, I'll just go edit that. That'll take me one second. (laughs) You know, it's like a very much um, looser kind of thing. You know, you can post an idea and, you know, in a book it's months, it's years of work and testing and retesting and, you know, shooting and editing and, you know, it goes through four editors or something. It's it's huge. It takes a team. It takes a lot of money. You know, they invest a lot of money in making a book and it's a lot of time. Like I'm writing my third at the moment and 
I've been writing it since January, I suppose, and I'm yeah. just not anywhere. The ideas finished. are almost the easy bit, 100%. aren't they? Like you can write down a hundred. I, I do, I do that, thing. yeah. You can write down a hundred <laughs> ideas and go, they sound great. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then you go, gee, the book's written, but then it's yeah. not even close. Six months later, yeah. you'll be still And that's exactly how away. I work. Like I go to my publisher, I was like, this is my next book, and it will just be a list of recipe ideas. But then it takes, you know, several meetings to like bring it in. and. I find it amazing or frustrating probably is more <laughs> to the point is that you'll test a recipe a number of times and you'll there'll still be a mistake. Oh, totally. You know, so you'll get to the fourth edit, as yeah. you say, and then you go, how did 50 grams make it when it's five? <laughs> and I always remember Matt Moran saying that he had a dish, I think it was his first book that was eight grams of wasabi and it got oh, printed God. as 80. <gasps> Oh and actually, God. the River Cafe, their first book, they ah. had the chocolate nemesis. Yeah, cake yeah, yeah. It, which was a famous, it was a mistake because in the first prints, it went to print with, the, I think, and somebody might correct me, but with the incorrect amount of flour. flour. So it would never set. So, <laughs> and where. But that's the, how they. <laughs> well, where the River Cafe is, too, is a very wealthy area oh, of London sure. and lots of very wealthy people. Yeah. So they'd say on a, like a Saturday, they'd get all these phone calls into the restaurant saying, it's Margaret here. <laughs> I've just baked your chocolate cake and it's not set. And they go, or it's in the oven and it's not setting. And they'd have to tell them it's never going to set. Like that. You yeah. just have to turn it into something else. It's going to become, what is it, like a, like, a I don't know, a tro- chocolate yeah. truffle. Because it'll never set. Yeah. And it wasn't until the next print that yeah, they right. could correct so the recipe. And even, you know, my first edition of Ostro, there's um, a pasta, it's garganelli um, with zucchini and pancetta. And... I didn't even notice until we were. Do, I was doing. I teach pasta classes, and my husband, who's a chef, he was cutting up the zucchini because it was the first time, and he was reading the recipe, and he's like, "Oh, this says four millimeters, or oh, four centi- yeah, four centimeters. <laughs> it should have been millimeters." Right. And I was like, "So they were oh, massive oh, chunks." <laughs> yeah, but they slipped through all the time. I yeah. had. I found one recently in in my first book that was a cheese tart. It said bake 140 degrees. I've never seen it. It's like eight, nine years old, and no one's ever said all oh, those cheese tarts Didn't. don't cook because it should have been like 240 or 220 or 200, you know. So think, you know, they would just sit in there and I reckon their job at 140 warming. degrees would warm and their main job in life would just be to seep oil. Like really, that's what they would do. And I think, you know, there is that amazing human element of a, of a book. You know, I think it's it's not a um, machine making these recipes behind, you know, we're human beings and we try our best and at the end of the day, that's that's all you can do. But at the same time... Yeah, I, that's somebody's dinner party I know, on the line, that's yeah? what I mean. At the same time, I somebody's don't... Somebody's slaving away. Know. You know, for someone to go out <laughs> and buy the book, number one, or then and then go buy the ingredients and spend all that time, yeah. like it's a huge responsibility. So, you know, you go to every effort, but... Some, so that's the difference between a book and social yeah, media, isn't it? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Your husband. Yeah. Japanese chef. Yeah. How'd you meet him? I met him um, in Melbourne. My housemate at the time was a waitress at the Japanese restaurant where he was oh. cooking, where he was chefing. And, yeah, he just came to my birthday party one night, <laughs> one birthday. You must have some interesting dinners. That's all I'm going to say. Because <laughs> you've taken us around the world a little yeah. bit in terms of your background and what you love and yeah. Italian. Yeah. And then you marry a Japanese yeah, no, chef. Yeah, a Japanese chef. Um, Do you have, like, the most eclectic uh, meal times ever? Or? Yeah. Because it's a little thing of you making... Uh, Katsu Sando, I think yes. it was, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. You know, I cook a lot of Italian food and even, you know, more Japanese now. Yeah, our meal times are really fun and really um, collaborative. He is an who amazing dri- Hang cook. on a minute, let's get to the important <laughs> stuff. Who drives who nuts in the kitchen? I think I, I think 
I probably drive him nuts because I am not that clean. <laughs> so you're not the one I was talking about earlier. You're not sushi standard. No. You're not sushi standard. He's but in, a- in saying that, though, I'm always cleaning out the drain in the sink, so <laughs> he's not either. <laughs> no, um, we work really well together, actually, and he helps me a lot with feedback and, yeah, coming up with new ideas, especially J- Japanese, you know, recipes. Yeah, he's an incredible cook and we do cook a lot. Of, you know, we have a lot of fun and he's he grew up in the countryside in Japan, um, like on a strawberry and rice farm. So there's a lot of good memories of, of food that he's had and, you know, we usually go to Japan every year, um, not at the moment obviously, but, um, yeah, I learnt, I've learnt a lot from him and how what's actually... It, what's the one thing you reckon that you know, you hold close that you've learned from him? How to cook rice. <laughs> Come on then, tell us how to cook rice. Well, I mean, we cook See, I'm it. pinning you down. <laughs> yeah, and if he came off a... I still what was can't it? A, really do A rice and... What did you say? A rice and strawberry. Strawberry farm, so yeah. He knows something about rice. I mean, number one... So it starts off where starts do you... starts off with the rice. Where do you buy your rice? Well, I mean, I think any... If you go to a Japanese grocer and try and buy some really good Japanese rice, the short grain rice, like you really can taste the difference. It is incredible, the texture of the grains. And, you know, we've stayed with friends who grow their own rice and eating their rice is like, you know, you could just Grow their rice here? No, in Japan. Yeah, but, you know, the... You could just eat rice plain as they as they do, and enjoy the. And enjoy what you're it. saying is enjoy the texture and the flavour, the mouth. The flavour, it's incredible. Yeah, we were there for a harvest actually the, on our last trip. It was really fun. I had my five year old was like you know pulling up all the sacks of rice and um, putting it in the dryer. It was yeah really great experience. We cook it on the stove in a um, clay pot. And it's got like a big wooden lid. It's very traditional <laughs> rice cooker. I couldn't actually tell you the ratios because... Are you serious? I know. <laughs> He's at home now listening to this guy. <laughs> what have I been showing him all this time? A bit like my I wife still... turning around and going, so how do you tie the chicken again after <laughs> 30 years? <laughs> no, but, you know, he rinses it. But I don't believe in the rinsing till clear thing. I think it's you never... You don't? I think it's never going to go clear, you know. Have you, have you done one of those little experiments where you cook it without rinsing? I think it, definitely you need twice, to rinse times, it. I don't, yeah, I haven't. I'm not that um, methodical. I haven't. No, I haven't. <laughs> In fact, lockdown, I don't know what you ended up doing, but a lot of lockdown I did some stuff where I got time and I've just gone, I'm just going to experiment yeah. with that and see if there's actually any difference. Totally. And surprisingly sometimes yes, surprisingly sometimes, sometimes, yeah. sometimes no. I just think like you know, you need a little bit of starch. There's never, you're never going to get rid of all the starch on the rice. And, I mean, especially Japanese rice, it kind of sticks together anyway. Like it's not um, fluffy yeah. rice. Yeah, so you want a little starchy sticky. It's fine. Yeah, so we rinse so- it. So you rinse? Do you soak? Rinse, do you- we soak it if we're doing, um, we often do like a mixed grain rice. So you have the um, the rice and then we sometimes put in a bit of brown rice and some maybe soybeans or azuki beans or things like that to make it, you know, a bit mm. interesting. Um, so we definitely soak that. Um, and it kind of rehydrates it. It gives it a head start basically. Head start it? and makes it kind of that equal cooking time in a way. Yeah. So what it, however, I'm pretty sure it's like one cup of rice and to one and a half cups of water. Right. And So, that so it's not, you don't in, do the knuckle thing. I you think don't you like, can do that, but okay. I, yeah, one cup of rice, one and a half cups of water, um, turn it on quite high and boil it. And then after, you know, three or four minutes after it's boiled, turn it right down, put the lid on, and then I think it simmers for like 10 minutes, mm-hmm. eight to 10 minutes. As and low then, as you can. Yeah, and then just turn it off and then let it sit for 10 or 15 minutes. So it keeps kind of absorbing. And don't peak. And don't peak. 
Yeah. I get in trouble. We're getting towards the end, but I have to ask. So your your son mm-hmm. is uh, Haruki, isn't it? I've got Haruki, and then I've got another oh, one. Got another yeah, I've got one. two boys, but two um, boys. Yeah, Yukito oh, is eighteen months, and Haruki is um, nearly six. Yeah. So they're growing up in undeniable food family. Yeah. What What are your hopes for them in terms of what they think about food? And- <laughs> I just hope that they number one appreciate food in, you know, how much effort it's taking to grow the food and, you know, the per- the person cooking it and that kind of joy of just sharing food around the table I think is so important at number one. But, yeah, I hope they're adventurous eaters. I hope they appreciate our cooking <laughs> when they grow up because <laughs> my five-year-old, he's gotten really fussy lately and, you know, I made this um, pie the other day. It was torta pascualina with the eggs in it and spinach and eggs. He's like, this is disgusting. <laughs> I'm like, and Nori was like, you have no idea. How, like, as in when you grow up, you are going to look back and realise how amazing this food is. Yeah, I think it, it took, Jenna is now, my daughter is 20, mm. and I think very early on I kind of, I tried everything, you yeah. know, like all parents do to yes. make vegetables interesting. And some kids, they're always parents where their kids just eat everything, right? Yeah. But there's the rest of us. Yes. That struggle. You know, and, and even I remember I, trying to like... cut, cook, flavour carrots in as many, <laughs> like from a chef's perspective, you know, a hundred different ways. Yes. Didn't make any difference. Yeah. And I think you realise actually that as long as you just keep giving it 100%. to them. 100%. Exposure. Palates, yep, and, you know, I grew up, when I was a kid, I didn't like, you know, capsicum and eggplant. And I'm still not a huge eggplant person, but... um. You know, kids go through phases and I think you just don't, we just don't make a big deal of it. Sure. We keep offering it. You know, we are so excited by food and I think they are too. You know, Haru loves shopping at me, shopping with me at the markets and picking out food and talking to the people selling. Like I think yeah. that is more important than making him finish his carrots, sure. you know, on a Friday night. Yeah, I just hope that they have a love of food and cooking. And- yeah, and you're passing on things that probably you don't think about, but mm. even the fact that they might eat a cheese with a rind on. Oh, totally. You know, it sounds silly, but it's... Um, a lot of kids are never yeah. exposed or to it. Or a whole right? piece of fruit. Or, or a whole piece of fruit. You know, like hey, I've got, I've, You know, I've got a good friend and I was utterly shocked. She goes, I've never eaten fresh beans before. I've always yeah, like, had frozen. Yeah. And I I was like, what? Yeah. Only frozen beans. And busy family. Totally. Big boys. Yeah. Eating them out of house yeah. and home. And, of course, now she's discovering all these yeah. and that was know, like, beautiful things about food but late in life. Right? You know, growing up I'd never had fresh tuna. I never had blueberries. That just wasn't around when I was mm. a kid. Fresh beetroot, which is all of which are fine. fine. Yeah, but you know, you do, you do discover new things, and I'm sure they will discover different things as they grow up, and that's great. Like you know, yeah. I think as long as we're giving them a good base, and my 18 month is a really good eater. <laughs> he eats everything. It up for it, I know. For everyone. And Haruki is too. Like, don't get me wrong, he's an amazing eater. I yeah. think. But yeah, I remember drive. We drove to Adelaide in January to like see family, and on the way down, we had to stop at McDonald's. <laughs> Because it was no, you know, we'd kind of exhausted all of our snacks and Haruki got a happy meal and he said it was the happiest day of his <laughs> life. Oh, this sad. I still, I still, I hold my heart. If my daughter comes back with it and she, I taught her from a very early age to avoid fast yes. food at any level, yes. right? And I brainwashed her, I'll be honest. Let's, anybody that's listening, I brainwashed her in her sleep. Don't eat fast food. But, I'm, you know, every time she'll come back and she'll, she won't have the burgers or anything, but she'll buy like a thick shake. She yeah. has, and I, you know, it's kind of that, Dirty yeah. secret you have, you know. Yeah. Stop at Macca's and get a thick shape, I mean, and I'll see the like... container and I'll and I'll hold my heart and I'll look sad and I go, 
surely not. You haven't after all these years. And she goes, you know, leave it alone. You're all allowed you. You know, it's like time and a place. Yeah, yeah it is. Every food time has its moments. So, so what's, what's next? You've got another books on the go? Yes, another book. Um, so we'll, book three book this three, is. Book three, yeah, we'll be shooting that in um, October, November. So recipes written, all the intros, all this stuff, and now. Oh, no, not all finished, yeah. Well, hurry Getting up. There. Come on. When's the deadline? <laughs> uh, not till, yeah, September, so I've got a bit of time. Yeah. But ha- halfway done. Yeah. What and what's this one about? Here? What's this one about? Oh, not sure. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's always so it's a jumble be my, of recipes. Yeah. Always and story to be told. Exactly. As it comes together. Yeah. Right. As it comes together. I'm always like very recipe focused first, and then I kind of think about the other and draw stuff. Draw it from. Later. I did actually. Yeah. I wrote it down. I don't know where I read it, and maybe this is some somewhere in this <laughs> book writing thing. But that maybe you're a procrastinator. Uh, I read one of your interviews. The word. Yeah. Use the word anxious. Ah. Oh, I mean... I've and that's de- an unusual word. Yeah, I don't think I'm a procrastinator. I think I've definitely, like, after both my babies, I've had anxiety, <laughs> like, proper. Um, but, yeah, in terms of food writing and stuff, like, I think definitely I love a deadline. I'm good at getting it done. I d- but I think, you know, when it's a self-directed, such a long, you know, a book takes a year, it's easy to kind of put it aside and just, you know, come to it, you know, all the other stuff that comes into daily life. Like I've only kind of just started re-looking at this book because I had a bit of a break. I was so busy with other work. So it's one of those things that can, yeah, I feel like comes and goes and it's a nice kind of I can dip in and out throughout the year. Yeah. Where's the anxiety come from then? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I've had This is like Dr. Oh, Gaz God. at the end. <laughs> no, so I think it's a really Gina. important um thing to talk about because I think, you know, I've had two babies and both times I've had postnatal anxiety and I think it's... Yeah, real thing that I've, yeah, that's part of. Oh, it's a, yeah. yeah. My, my wife um, had postnatal depression and it was it's a hard. game changer. Yeah, it's really us. hard. And I think, yeah, I struggled both times with both my boys. So, but I think, you know, getting help and speaking to the right people is so important. And yeah. food for me has always helped as well. Like being able to cook and, you know, I remember after I had my, after I had Haruki, I would, yeah, be just like baking because I just needed a release and something that I knew would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I knew it would work. I could make a cake and I would feel like I've achieved something maybe. But, yeah, it's definitely like something I've, yeah, spoken about openly in like to media mm. and stuff because, yeah, it's a big, I mean, it's been a journey. Like, you know, when I had Haruki, I was 26 and that, you know, I didn't have any friends with with babies and, I was just felt, yeah, isolated, lonely. Like they're all emotions that come up for mm. women all the time. When and not they in have... control, I'd imagine. I mean, yeah, I mean, Mandy always said to me, she went no from one... busy corporate to yeah. all of a sudden not yeah. being in control of anything. I mean, it's a huge, you know, change. And I think so much of it is, you know, hormonal. And, you know, there's like so many factors that go into it. And it's undeniable that like women go through this all the time. And we should be talking about it more because we need to normalize it. It's okay. Like it's, it's okay to feel like that, but it doesn't have to be that hard, you know. It's normal and, you know, just there's people there who can help you. You know, we just see every day now people talking about it more and more and it doesn't equate that. Like a lot of people struggle with their mental health Mm. and, you know, yeah, having a baby is such a huge shift. And on social media everything's bright and shiny and amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and I've, you know, I've spoken openly on there because I think it's important that people know that, you know, there are struggles as well as, the good times. Yeah. Yeah. Post a shit picture of yourself <laughs> instead of a good one that's been filtered. Is that what you're saying? No, having a sh- but just Having be, a shit day. Just, just be letting open you know. and, like, be real and, you know, yeah, I've 
yeah, I've talked about it a lot. I think yeah. it's, yeah. And well, I think second time around I thought it wouldn't happen, but it did, you know. Something is just out of your control and, yeah. Yeah. And, in, and, and fantastic you've got mediums that you can share all of your knowledge, whether it's food or yeah. your personal experiences. Totally, yeah. yeah. I love it. Thanks. Thank you. I th- appreciate that little moment of of, <laughs> you, of your personal life that we didn't expect at the end of the interview. And on to brighter things. So books coming yes, out when? Yes, books coming out. It's not till um, probably September next so year. So lots of hard work. Yeah, lots of work then. in between then. Um, yeah. And where do people follow you if they want to jump on and follow recipes in your day-to-day? Yeah, so my Instagram is juliaostro, so J-U-L-A-O-S-T-R-O. Um, my website is julia-ostro.com. They're, yeah, they're probably the two best spots, but you can find my books in, yeah, all good bookstores and, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a lovely chat. It's been yes. an easy hour, <laughs> hasn't it? Easy, easy hour of foodie chat. So <laughs> to everyone else, thanks for listening. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. So now for my tips and tricks. And because we were talking about Italian food just a little bit, I thought I'd give you my tip to make the perfect gnocchi. And my first tip is to weigh stuff. If you take the guesswork out of it, your chance of success is always improved. So 750 grams of potatoes, you can peel them, cut them, boil them until they're tender, drain them, and then let that steam escape. And they should be nice and fluffy. I put them through a ricer or a masher. And my second tip is all about incorporating the flour. So while the potato's hot, mix in that one egg thoroughly and then add the flour all at once and mix it lightly but only into a rough kind of mixture. Tip it out onto the bench and then here's the key. Don't knead it because you'll develop the starches and the gluten in the potato and the flour and then you have heavy gnocchi. So press it down, pushing that flour into the potato. Kind of lift it up from the sides, bring it into the middle, almost like folding or closing a book and then press it down again. Do that three or four times. This will incorporate most of the flour, and then a quick knead at the end will bring it all together. When you press that gnocchi dough, it'll leave a little imprint in the dough, but it'll also rebound just a little bit. That is the perfect texture. Then continue on. Divide that dough into three or four pieces to make it easier. Roll it into nice little sausage shapes, and then cut it on an angle. And then simply pop those into boiling solid water for about three or four minutes until they rise to the surface. And then all you've got to do is lift them and drain them out of the boiling water, put them in a bowl, and you know what? Just good extra virgin olive oil and Parmesan cheese. Absolutely delicious. Give them a try. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky, and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.